question um, about explaining the other end of this, the, the um, arbitrage between the entrepreneurs' arbitrage between the bond market and the stocks market, or stock market. Um, so the way that would work is as follows. Um, the people that are willing to lend money, say, uh, say you have, uh, okay, this is the interest rate bid, five. Sorry, sorry. Five. Five. Five and a half. But underneath this chap is, is, is a guy at 4.9, 4.8. And above this chap is another one at six, six and a quarter, six and a half. So just like I was crossing these people out, when you when you're when you're referencing the, the floor of the interest rate, so the entrepreneur references the offer for the interest rate, and he sees right five and a half is good, makes my enterprise nice and profitable, whatever, and then eventually crossed out until the marginal marginal entrepreneur is not willing to to take that offer. Um, for various reasons. So, as you said in the interim, it could be because um, the return that he can get on someone else's enterprise is higher than the, the return that he can get on his enterprise, on the bonds of someone else's enterprise. So, he refuses to bid up the interest rate further and put the proceeds into capital equipment, as it were. So, that's the flip side. So this is the entrepreneur, marginal entrepreneur, and this one is the uh, marginal saver. Determined by. Is that is that clear? Yeah, that, that part's clear. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure what you meant when you said he's arbitraging between the stock market and the bond market. Well, in the sense that he will take, um, he will issue bonds in order for some kind of enterprise, like a factory. Or that doesn't mean that doesn't mean the stock market. We think of the stock market as the secondary market for equity. Uh, uh, let, let me just say something here. That's. That terminology is just for the sake of simplification. What it means is that there is a marginal uh, producer and interest rate goes up. The marginal producer at that point wants to retrench. Now, instead of saying that, I just uh, find it simpler to say uh, retrenching means that he stops maintaining equipment and if he can sell some, he will sell some. He may not be able. But when he has the cash, that he puts into the bond market because the return is higher there. So 
I expect I express this by saying that he is uh, selling the stock and buying the bond. And when the interest rate turns around, he finds himself in the position that he can now compete. And then he refurbishes uh, his uh, productive equipment and goes back to production and finances his, expect, his expenses by selling the bond. Now this is all too complicated to say, so just say he's selling the bond and buying the stock. But actually you could do that. Yeah. You, you, well, I back, you, you are in the armchair and uh, you know, you, you have a company which you uh, understand what it is doing, and, and then according to the change of interest rate, you do this kind of arbitrage. But the expression itself is just a simplification for for this uh, process. So it's happening. It's, it's not a theory. It's uh, a lot of. They have to because if. The producer doesn't get the bond to replace his income. He's going to lose. This is uh, I'm I'm very surprised that this is not codified in the literature because this arbitrage between the stock market and bond market is is very real. So, for example, there's, from my perspective as a, as a fund manager, I would love to issue debt at the government rate and buy the equity of Unilever. A, because there's a positive yield spread, but B, because um, the return that Unilever gets upon its property, plant and equipment is higher than the, uh, the marginal cost of borrowing. So you can look at it in terms of the stock market, which I have to do. I don't actually borrow money and then set up another Unilever. I just buy the equity on the exchange. Okay. Um, so, any more questions? Philip? Well, I'd ask you a question to just um, go backwards a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I was a little confused by the stock market. Okay. What I meant by uh, this was that um, when, when you satisfy each proposition, you take an amount of that substance to satisfy that proposition. And as you satisfy each proposition, the amount of that substance that you're using to satisfy the, the aggregate of propositions is increasing. So when you sum up that aggregate, you get the stock, as it were, as it were you know, which is also termed total utility. But that's a stupid thing. That doesn't mean anything. So when it comes to stock to flow, well, you've got your stock here. And the marginal bit of water that's sort of still coming out of the pipe, as it were, is the flow, U4. So uh, you do you add them all up 
and then you divide it by U4. So, for example, when you're sort of when you've been put on this planet and you're considering gold, for example. Now, I have no idea what the propositions for gold are, but there are there seem to be infinitely many of them, and they never there's still sort of want of more. So when you aggregate all of the, uh, the stocks up as each proposition of gold, I think the propositions for gold would be something like, I like it, I like it, I like it, I like it, I like it. <laughs> and it sort of doesn't diminish. Now, as Professor said, the reason why it doesn't diminish is not, the reason why it's gold that has that property is neither here nor there. But the point is, there will be a substance on the planet which will have that property. Just like there is a, there, there's a largest number in, the set of, in a set of numbers, unless they're all equal. So, so, so that's, that's what I meant by, by that, really. So I can extract from this, if your, your dribble in the pipe increases, all this stuff kind of gets less... Uh, important if you will mm. and if there's no more water the number of four properties may not even be met yeah so exactly. that's kind of like yeah a relative uh, that's why when it's such a common substance if it's infinitely available it has no real utility or what have you yeah. air you just breathe it yeah yeah so it's no yeah. economic value so it's always within sort of a restricted supply of whatever you're considering whatever object you're considering you know it's restricted. The primary production of gold, okay. yeah, which is about 2,500 tons. So the stocks, that's like for the water, that wouldn't be your barrels of water, it would be whatever use you have for that? Yeah, yeah. Water, water would be, because there's so much water around, which in a way is why gold is like water. It's probably not the best example to, to, to have done it with, but um, I don't know, paint maybe. But you don't have many propositions for paint apart from painting. Bricks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or bricks, yeah. You know. Just think about the world in the desert. Yeah. It's got an, an amount, a determined amount of liter per second of water you can add, you can subtract at least the maximum you can subtract from the well. So in that case it's restricted yeah. and the only proposition that will be satisfied is the first one. You don't have enough water to satisfy any other proposition. But saying you did and then suddenly there was a contraction in the amount of water available, which proposition gets knocked off first? Is the fourth one, not the first one. <laughs> okay. So, in some perverse way, it's the, the least important use of water that is determining its value, not the most important use of water. Just like in a chain, it's the weakest link that determines the total strength. It's not the strongest. It's not the strongest part of it. Okay. Um, any more questions? Francois. You said that. Uh, the business cycle comes from the mismatch in the time duration. Uh, as far as I know, the Austrian school states that the business cycle comes from uh, 
credit expansion due to a fashion of user banking. Mm. Are you saying the same thing or are you taking a Credit could expand without causing a without causing a, a contraction at the other end of it. It's it's only when the credit is taken on 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 the credit is taken on by the counterparty for a um, a duration. Well, if the person that's borrowing it intends to let's say finish his enterprise at the end of six years. If he takes one year money to finance it, but it will only be liquidated at the end of the sixth year, that's what causes the cycle in the sense that that one year money will be withdrawn at any period within that six years. And he'll have to liquidate whatever he's built if he can't get, the, uh, if he can't get the, someone to refinance the money. Now, it doesn't matter per se the nominal amount he was borrowing, he could be borrowing a gargantuan amount. But if he's got it matched and he's sure that he'll be able to liquidate the liability, and especially because the liability has a maturity which is equal, sorry, which is greater than or equal to that moment when he'll sell whatever he's doing, then it will be fine. There won't be a contraction in, in economic activity. The contraction in the activity comes when you can't roll it effectively. Really. Just comment on that. They're both agreeing that it's illicit what they, what's being done. But those guys, the Austrians, call it fractional reserve, which doesn't mean much. And he's specifically saying because the time doesn't match, that's the reason there's, it's illicit. You see? So it's, it's digging into the... It's like the interest rate because people for some reason start to want you know higher or lower time preference uh, animal spirits no it's not animal spirits it's market stuff that arises but how and by digging into that the mechanism starts to become clear is that, is that okay yeah in fact you're saying the same thing I deposit some money at the bank on a deposit account the bank tends the money to a capitalist after five years and I come up in one month to take my money back, there is a mismatch in duration mm. and a background and yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So you're saying the same? Yeah. Well, I... Um, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've written a paper on this and gotten an awful lot of hate mail. <laughs> what the so-called options are saying is that fractional reserve banking consists of the bank lending ten times as much as it gets. And that fractional reserve banking per se is fraud, full stop. What Sandeep and the professor are saying, and what I've said in this paper, is that there's nothing wrong with fractional reserves per se. Fractional reserve banking is when the bank lends less than it takes in, not more. But it, it, lends, it lends more than zero, which is what the so-called full, full reserve would, what the Austrians would require. Uh, but the problem with information mismatch, not fractional reserves. So there's, there's, there's a very big, important difference here. And it ultimately comes down to, and there's one or two people that were economically educated, and they argued it, argued it all the way down to, a uh, professor pointed out that von Mises holds that a credit slip is the same thing, that a, that, a, that a credit piece of paper is the present good, just equivalent to a piece of gold. 
And that's, and you know, I argued with one person all the way down to that, and that's what they believe. What they're saying is that the bank issues credit, that is money, the same as gold is money. And they refuse to make that distinction between the two. And that's, that's the root of the, uh, of the problem. Originally, originally, if it was a if it was a bank run by an especially um, noble's not the right word, but honest family, that's what they would do. Um, but uh, forgive my Italian friends here; they, that wasn't the way it was done in in in, 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 in Italy. You know, <laughs> from day one they uh, they sort of said right. You know, but they agreed with the depositor that they would be. Um, Doing something with the deposit, you know. Not always, I think, because I mean. No, I'm talking about at the very beginning, and then as it sort of expanded, because don't forget, the customers of banks back then were not the peasant sort of in the street. They were of a certain sort of class of people, so you can't really, you can't mess around with them too much. Otherwise, you can mess around with everyone else. But, but, but the fact that they are out deposits which should actually be there uh, to, to, to be... To be, to be it's been done from a very early period. Yeah, so this is a kind of disorder that says this is a kind of a juristic problem mm. which actually should be defined. What do you do if you go to the bank and give them a, a normal... A, a well, that's where your own... That's where our own education comes in, okay? People, the general populace doesn't understand this concept. They think that when you put money in a bank, it's safe. There's no risk at all. And it's there. And it's there and I earn money. And they don't think, hold on, how can I have access to my money whenever I want, but I still earn money on it? They don't think. So, you get, you get the banking system you deserve. Yes. And that, that's the property rights issue we talked about. The yeah. British, there was a jurisprudence in England that decided that when the money is deposited in the bank, it's the bank's money, and you only have a claim against it. And that's where it all started. Because if, if it wasn't, that's the original sin, if you will, and then we got worse and worse. Um, um, the math that I did at the beginning. <laughs> I just wanted to make the point that there is a big difference between continuous and discrete mathematics. And don't write down the equations I wrote down already. And there are analogies between, if you have some, uh, uh, an equation in continuous form, you can have the discrete version of that. And it's very easy to get from one to the other, but the dynamics of the two are not necessarily not not necessarily related at all. So that's what I'm trying to say there. 
you don't need to be a, a mathematician to, to appreciate that, I hope. But uh, it's, uh, it's a big error that's made in economics to assume that you can use um, any form of continuous maths or calculus. Um, you can use it if there are restrictions, I suppose, as to what people can do. But in general, you can't. You know, there's no... These are deterministic processes. And um, no human activity is generally um, deterministic. Louis. I have a question on the uh, two, two theories. Yeah. The time preference theory of interest, mm -hmm. um, which I'm very familiar with, having been trying to as an actor, but um, the productivity theory of interest, and that was that uh, there were competing schools uh, in all sense. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Oh, who, who was uh, who was uh, advocating? You know, who was uh, the school? Who was behind the school of productivity theory? Who? I don't know. The professor will be able to, to elaborate who the founder of... What I meant the, 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 the contrasting schools were were the time preference and the productivity school. Not that there are different productivity schools. No, 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 but um, am I right in interpreting uh, what you wrote uh, that, that there were competing schools in the Where did I write that? View, uh, about how interest rates fall. Or what they, what they there, uh, what they should be. Kind of preference theories, well, now that's what they teach, right? Yeah. Um, or in finance. And, yeah. And so forth. Well, productivity theory of interest, I'm not familiar with it, so I'll give you a word on it. But just staying within the Austrian school of economics, the, uh, the two big names after Mangers are, of course, Ludwig von Mises and Bernbauer. Now, Bernbauer wrote a huge monograph On, on interest. And uh, he went through all of the multiple issues here and he classified them productivity, time preference, and there were even some other minor schools who shouldn't fit the big picture, but that's not important for our purposes. So uh, the best mind at that time, best brain, was Bernbauer. And I mean, he really put a lot of time in what was and gave you a, a balance Now, he had to say what he was, where he was, right? I mean, it's not enough to write a book, 
two classified various economists uh, but he would have to say what he wants, where he wants. But uh, he was very cautious, you see. But most of his other writings on interest suggested that he was a time preference theorist. <coughs> and Mises, and that means that he was in the company of Mises. But you see, when you write such a monograph, you have to be even-handed. Yes. And he tried to be even-handed with the, with the uh, productivity theory people. So he, he pointed out various uh, things where he thought the productivity theory cannot be just dismissed like Mises, out of hand. It's just garbage. Don't touch it. It's not worth talking about it. Well, that couldn't have been uh, the approach of the Moore, who was writing theory of interest. And, uh, and in fact, he was not so sure that it's either or. Black or white. And then they fell out. <laughs> Ludwig and Mises and Lundbauer fell out. And, and Mises was rather rude now, if I may say so. He did not, he had no patience at all with anybody who could give, say a, uh, half a good word something like that, you know, for the productivity theory. It, it was a religion to me, but it's time preference and cannot be anything else. So uh, what I suggest, if you're interested in this question, get a copy of Wim Bauer's Theory of Interest, I think in two volumes. In English or in German? Hmm? No, no, it has been translated. And it's, it, it's, it's a great work. I mean, even if you don't want to read it from cover to cover, you have it on your shelf for reference because it's a marvelous, it's a marvelous uh, thing. But it's unfortunate that uh, Mises disparaged uh, Bloomberg. I, I cast my vote to
this out somehow, you know, because, oh, this is another thing I wanted to say, and please contradict me if you can. Suppose you read all the relevant literature and want to say, what's the definition of interest? I mean, if you talk about interest, we have to know what we are talking about. So, name it. The, um, the, well, when I was taught, it was based fully on the time um, uh, preference theory. And therefore, interest was defined as the, uh, the, the time value of money. Yeah, but Mises goes right out and say that interest the interest rate is not the result of a market process. It's like just God imposes it on the world. And human beings have nothing to do with it. It's like the weather, you cannot influence it, and so on. Now, how many authors can you name who say, well, in order to determine what the interest rate is, you have to go to the bond market and get a quotation on the bond price, and then it's a little calculation, but the bond price and the rate of interest are in rigid mathematical uh, relationship. And that is what I call the seesaw, Kids sitting on a uh, what? The plank board and and play seesaw. So this is the same, but it's rigid. Interest rate goes up, bond price goes down by a definite amount. 
and vice versa. How many authors can you name who defines the rate of interest in terms of the bond price? I was looking, I, I was desperate finding something because I thought it was too much responsibility for me to say that I'm the one and only author who defines the interest in terms of the bond price. And, you know, to say it's, it's innate, like this is about time, it's God-given, it's God-imposed, and so on. This is mystification. It's right there. It's a market process. Buying and selling bonds. And when I say that, it's really good bonds, but now let's The rate of interest is a result of the market process, and in particular, it's the bond market which determines the rate of interest. Okay? And once you accept this very reasonable definition of interest, it falls into your lap that this controversy, its fight, this fight, just doesn't make sense. Because once it's the bond market, then bid and ask comes in. And once bid and ask is there, you have to analyze what determines the bid price, what determines the ask price, and you discover that the, the uh, bid price is determined by the productivity of capital or marginal capital and the ask price by the, uh, and I always say marginal time preference. Now Mises never says that. Mises always says time preference period because uh, he never makes, a, a, never points out that there are misers like Scrooge, okay, and there are prodigal sons from the Bible, okay? There are misers who would not, uh, penny pinchers and other, right? That's another. And obviously the time preference of Scrooge, the penny pincher, uh, is not the same as the time preference of the prodigal son who wants to blow his inheritance, blows it over the shortest period of time, has fun and so on, and then he's penniless, has to go back to his father and ask for his forgiveness. But to say that there is just a God-imposed time preference which is yours, yours, yours and mine are the same, and Scrooge's is the same, and Prodigal's is the same. That doesn't make sense. It's like with productivity. There are more productive equipment, and then less and less and less, and then there is a margin. Below that, they are not productive, and they are not going to be used. The same here, the time preference. There are people who have very high time preference. That would be uh, uh, Scrooge. And then, 
at the other end of the spectrum you find the prodigal son you see and then there is this, this spectrum and somewhere in between there is a marginal there is a, a, a I call him this fellow the marginal bond holder you see his time preference is the marginal time preference. So the concept of marginal of time preference is not a monolithic concept. It's like with everything else. It's a, a part of the So we have to talk about marginal 